0: We've all heard the exaggerated claims sometimes of politicians in their stump speeches. Uh, They use this rhetoric to draw you in, and uh, sometimes uh, they may offer the whole world, and uh, they're going to end world hunger and forgive everyone's debts and give everyone large sums of money and land and all kinds of things. Uh, and we know that they will never deliver on most of these things. Uh, and These are rhetorical devices to draw us in, to make us want to vote for them, especially if, if their talking points line up with our own worldview. Then we connect with them and we can give them some allowances. We, can, we, can, we understand that what they're offering is rhetorical and is not necessarily going to happen. And Sometimes the things they say anger us uh, because their underlying philosophy or worldview is one that we don't connect with and we may even find dangerous. Um, and in that case, we latch on to those rhetorical statements and we say, he is a liar or he's crazy or he could never accomplish that or she could never uh, do those things that they're promising. You see, Jesus has already angered the ruling religious elite by enabling someone to break the Sabbath traditions. In doing that, he upsets their worldview. In the rest of chapter 5, Jesus uses that opportunity to justify his behavior of healing a man who was lame for 38 years on the Sabbath. And he does this... By claiming to be equal with God. Or at least saying statements that are seen to be claims to be equal with God. And this just inflames their anger and it makes the matters all that much more worse. What does Jesus mean when he says, My Father is working until now and I am working. What are his intentions with his close identification with him and his father? And these questions are of the utmost significance because they decide if Christianity is valid or has no basis. Is Jesus a liar? Or is he crazy? Or is he Lord? And is what he says truthful? Well, to understand that, we need to look closely at what Jesus says. And to do that, I want to examine this under three heads. The nature of the equality between God the Father and God the Son, and the bond of their equality, and then the results of their equality. Since Jesus is equal with God, we must honor him as God. As you're able, please stand with me as we read together from the Gospel According to John, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 5. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, So also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus, as we come this morning, to a text with great mystery, with great depth. Help us, Father, by your Spirit to understand your word, to understand the nature of Jesus, to understand who he was, who he is, and who he will be. Father, to understand his relationship with you and how you have been revealed in him. And, of course, to understand our response to all of this, to honor him. We pray this in His name, and Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This episode of healing the paralytic on the Sabbath and the discourse that follows sets the stage for the rest of the Gospel. This is a turning point in the Gospel of John, and it sets the trajectory. Jesus Healing this man on the Sabbath leads to his death. If this event did not happen in the way that it did, it might have taken a lot longer to get to the point. But Jesus does this intentionally, provoking this response because he's he's touching something very dear to them. Their idol. Their idol that they have crafted. They may call it tradition. They may call it the worship of God. But Jesus is subtly showing them that what they are doing is is false. And in this way, he takes the prerogatives of God himself upon him in this healing of this paralytic man on the Sabbath day. My father is working until now, and I am working. And the Jews interpret that to mean that Jesus is making himself equal with God. Jesus is not a person who walks around with a shiny white ha- hair of blonde hair, blue eyes flowing in the wind, you know, like those 70s pictures of Jesus. That's not, there was no halo, there was nothing that marked him out as being the divine son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He looked like an ordinary Middle Eastern man. He was probably short. He had a beard, probably. Probably. And there was nothing that marked him out as looking significant. People missed him. They missed who he was. They couldn't tell because he was just a carpenter. He just grew up in the sticks. And then he begins to reveal himself as having great wisdom and as a rabbi, doing signs and wonders that, A a regular person could never do. Turning water into wine. And not just any wine, but the best wine. Healing people who are sick. Demonstrating through his works by doing things that only God can do. Something is different about Jesus. That he is not like an ordinary teacher. He's not somebody who is saying... I've now discovered an innovative way to read Moses, and I want to tell you about it. He is the Son of God in the flesh. And whenever we talk about ourselves, it might not be the most accurate thing. Sometimes people don't interpret themselves very well, right? Your spouse may have a better understanding of who you are than you do sometimes, right? But when Jesus speaks about himself, we should pay close attention. What he says is true truth. Nothing can be truer. And when he is talking about himself, we should be careful to pay attention to every detail. It is this this statement that launches this discussion that Jesus begins to engage the Jews with. Because his close identification with the Father provokes them. They think this guy is a man and he's identifying himself with God who we should honor and worship. And what he's saying is blasphemous. Jesus doesn't deny that. He doesn't deny the charge that that he is making himself equal with God. If somebody said that to me, you're making yourself equal with God, I might use a lot of Bible passages to show that I'm not. I'm not God, but... I am adopted into his family. I've been made a son and heir with Christ. I might say that in the person of Jesus Christ, humanity has been elevated to a position of great honor and glory because of him. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But I might qualify very carefully if somebody was accusing me of making myself equal with God. But Jesus doesn't do that. He says... My father is working and I. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. You see, the first thing we notice is the nature of their equality is that of a relationship between a father and a son. We need to be careful how we think of this relationship. A good rule of thumb is to remember that God is transcendent and wholly other than us. If we maintain the distinction between God as a creator and us as the creation, we will do well in our reasoning and trying to understand that what Jesus is saying about him being a son of the Father is not a one-for-one comparison between us as fathers and our own sons. Your relationship does not run from us thinking about our own relationships back to thinking about God, but thinking about God and His relationship to the Son back down to us and how we relate as fathers and sons, as families. If you maintain that, because Father is its not a metaphor. It's not a simile. God is not like a Father. He is a Father. The Father... And we struggle here, just uh, just as we might struggle when Paul says to the Ephesians that your marriages are to be a picture of Christ and his church. But it's not that you understand Christ and his church by looking at your marriage. That is a mystery. But what Paul says is you are to interact with your husband and your wife as Christ did with the church. He sets the example for the pattern in our relationships and not the other way around. It might sound like hair splitting, but this very problem has been snuck in by theologians as they try to understand human relationships. But human relationships work much oftentimes very differently than God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. We are finite. We have a beginning in time. And when we generate an offspring, we give of ourselves with another to form a new person. We're also sinful. and We're incapable of perp- perfectly replicating the love and mutual self-giving that is the relation of father and son. Further, the father has no beginning. And there was never a time when the son did not exist. It's not as if in eternity it was God and he was one. And then later in time, he created a son. That's how it works with us. You begin with a a man and a woman together. And then later in time, a child comes from that union. That's not how it happened with God, the father and God, the son and that relationship. The father is called father because of he has a son who is eternally born, eternally generated. There is never a time when the Son did not exist. And the Son is called the Son because of his relationship with the Father. The Father is not diminished by the generation of his Son, nor is he divided or changed. The Son is not a part of the Father, like a little part of him, but each mutually indwells the other. Together with the Spirit, they are eternal unity in diversity. One God in three persons. More importantly, there are not three gods. There is one God. Even though the Father is not the Son or the Spirit, and the Son is not the Father or the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father or the Son, yet they are all one God. Does your head hurt? Notice also that the son does not make himself equal with God. This is what they are claiming. He is equal with God. And he speaks out of that position, that relationship with the father. Arius, who was a heretic in the third century... Denied the full divinity of Christ, seeing him as the first of God's creation. And he he pointed to these statements of uh, Jesus in the Gospel of John to prove his nonsense. But we are to hear in these statements not as uh, describing something about the relationship between Jesus and God the Father in eternity past. But how Jesus relates to the Father in his work of redemption as a Savior. When he came and took on flesh, he responds differently than he did in his relationship to the Father before he took on flesh. Calvin says this, he says, For the discourse does not relate to the simple divinity of Christ. And those statements which we shall immediately see do not simply and of themselves relate to the eternal word of God, but they apply only to the Son of God so far as he is manifested in the flesh. Jesus is talking about his relationship to the Father now that he is on earth and has taken on flesh. He says, "I, I can do nothing of my own accord. Does that make Jesus less than God the Father? No, it does not. It does not make him less than at all. It does not diminish the divinity of Jesus at all. But in his relationship of coming as a redeemer to save his people, he humbles himself in obedience to the Father's plan. The Father is the giver, giving the Son. And the Son is the present that we receive, given by the Spirit and the Father. For the Father... Uh, The Son does nothing that the Father does not do. You see in this that Jesus, the Son of God, manifests the Father to the world. We cannot see God the Father. He is a spirit. He does not have a body like men, as our catechism teaches us. And Jesus is working. He does what he sees. And, And according to verse 30, what he also hears the Father doing the authority he has is that of the Father. And the point is, as one commentator said, it is impossible for the Son to take independent, self-determined action that would set him over against the Father as another God. For all the Son does, he, do, he does both coincident with and coextensive with all that the Father does. Jesus is not establishing himself as another God. Another God to be, maybe be worshipped alongside of God the Father. That's not what he's doing. What he's saying is the work that I am doing is what I've seen my Father do. What I do is consistent with who he is. Because we are one. They have essential unity. And it's, it's, it's helpful for us to think about what Jesus' statements are not they are not an assertion for tritheism three different gods maybe in unity but different nonetheless jesus is not god alongside of the father they're also not a statement on the relationship that existed in eternity past that is how god is in himself but they refer to his uh, relationship with God the Father and God the Son in His work of redemption. And this is important because there has been many debates lately, especially within the past several years, among those who favor a complementarian view of marriage, where the husband and the wife are are made with roles that complement each other. They're not the same. They're unique. And they're, each of their roles complement and uh, serve the purposes that God gave. Well, some who believe that, that hold that view, have tried to find reasons for it in the relationship between God and the Father, or God the Son and God the Father. The Father gives commands and the Son obeys them. Is that true of the Father and the Son relationship before Jesus came to earth? And the answer is, we don't know. <laughs> We don't know what God is like in Himself because if we did, we would be God. God has revealed Himself to us, and in His revelation, we see Jesus submitting to the Father. But should we use those inter Trinitarian relationships to build our own human relationships? Probably not. Probably not a great idea. The better way is to build our human relationships based on what God has instructed us, what God has taught us in his word, which actually is not all that challenging. We, we tend to make it more challenging than it really is. But it's important for us to, to recognize in these statements, Jesus is not trying to develop the relationship between men and women. He's trying to develop his relationship with his Father. He's trying to justify the work that he is doing on the Sabbath of recreating a man's life, of healing him, of ushering in a new exodus, the redemption that comes through his broken body and his shed blood. So it's important for us to to not try to make these discussions do more than they're intended to. The nature of, of the equality that Jesus has with the Father is a complete unity of will and action. He does what He sees the Father do. And He does that faithfully. But I also want you to notice the bond of this equality. In verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. The Father loves the Son. In his epistle, John says, God is love. And John, in his epistle, is showing that the greatest act of love was sending of the Son by the Father to die for undeserving sinners. And it's worth reading what he talks about because we often miss the statement that God is love. We misunderstand what, what that means. John says in 1 John 4, 8, Anyone who does not love God does not know God. Paul uses the same line of argument to exemplify this great characteristic of love that is in God. He says in Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God can so, show such love, such love as to give His only begotten Son because He is love. We must remember that because God is a simple being, He doesn't have parts or passions. It's not like part of God is holy, part of God is just, part of God is truthful. God is all of His attributes, eternally and infinitely so. He is eternally and infinitely holy. He is eternally and infinitely loving. He is His attributes completely. Like a diamond. It's one diamond. But it has different facets. And each radiate a different image of that one diamond. But contrary to other religions that are polytheistic or Or monistic, like Islam. For God to be love, he must exist in a relationship with someone else. C.S. Lewis once said, in, in Mere Christianity, he said, All sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. But they seem not to notice that the words, God is love, have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. Did God become loving when he made the world and then he has something to love? Well, that's true of a lot of polytheism, right? But it often goes very badly when you make creation something that the gods, let's say, had to do, right? Often you read in, um, in the, the uh, Babylonian epic of Gilgamesh, which has a, a creation story and a flood story like our own, and, and some of the stories from Babylon uh, that have creation stories. The gods create because they have something lacking, or they don't want to work. They want the gods, they want the people to service them. To worship them. They need the creation in some way. And if you study Islam. You'll know that Allah is not loving. He demands obedience. He does not exist in a relationship with anyone else. He gives commands. And he expects obedience. Now you, you may counter and say. Well it seems like God made the world. Because he n- needs to love. That does describe those worldviews that I talked about. In fact, in, in the Enuma, Elish asserts that Marduk would create man so that man can service the gods. Man was made so that we can work for the gods. And you, if you've read Greek mythology, you know it just runs amok. It goes bad because one, you are presented with a god that lacks something. Our God is perfect in community existing from all of eternity. Before he even made the world, he was love because he existed in a community of three loving persons devoted wholly to each other. He did not have a need or a lack that caused him to create the world. In fact, you can say better that it was out of the overflow of his love that he created the world. He exists in a reciprocal relation of persons. Father loving the Son. Son loving the Father. Spirit loving Father and Son. Each expressing their mutual admiration and love perfectly. And their disputes against the Arians, the early church fathers, articulated this idea of mutual indwelling. They called it perichoresis. It was like a dance. It's like a dance of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all together, existing in perfect unity. And it will be later in subsequent uh, discourses in John 14 for Jesus to kind of flesh out what this looks like. What he means when he articulates that he is working on the Father's authority. For they mutually indwell each other. It is possible to say, as he said in John fourteen seven, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And I identify with Philip because I'm scratching my head just like he is. And he says, Lord, show us the father and it's enough. And, and Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. There is a diversity of persons and their unique missions, even at the same time as they have essential unity. And each can be said to be present in the work of the other. That is the bond of love. That is the bond of their equality. It's love. But what's the result of their equality? Of course, the work that Jesus had already done by healing the man who had been lame for 38 years. Jesus can do that not because he has a close relationship with the man upstairs. And he can ask for favors whenever he wants. That's not what Jesus is articulating. But because he is God in himself. God in flesh. For God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, came to earth and he took on flesh so that he could reveal the Father to us. And Jesus does the work that only God can do because he is God. What then are are these greater works that Jesus will do that will cause us to marvel? Verse 20. Remember, Jesus is dealing with opponents. He's not speaking to his disciples per se. He's speaking to those who are rejecting him. Those who are his own people who he came to redeem, to save, and they rejected him. He's speaking to them. And that's important for this context. His own people don't believe, but the signs that he is doing are all meant to point to that manifestation of the Father so that they would believe. Remember why John is writing? So that they would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and, and by believing they might have life eternal. The result of their equality is the authority to do things that may, will make people marvel. Not because Jesus is a cheap magician, but for two reasons. To render those without excuse who do not believe and to draw out faith in those who do. Part of it is to harden their hearts. How can you see the works that I have done and not see God? How can you see life restored to somebody and not see that as the creative work of God? How can you reject a person Who came and did good. How can you murder him? All of Jesus' works serve as a testimony against those people who rejected him. Rendering them without excuse. You have no excuse. You saw everything he did. You heard everything he said. How can you reject him? But it's also to draw out faith in those who do believe in him. We see the works and we marvel. That's God in the flesh. Jesus is God Himself. And He reveals perfectly the Father. That authority He was given from the Father is to give and take life. To give life to raise the dead. To take life to render judgment. We're not going to talk a lot about judgment today because we're going to spend next week talking about the power that Jesus has been given by the Father to judge the world. But notice that within just a few chapters in chapter 11, Jesus calls Lazarus out of the grave. He says, Lazarus, come out. And it's a beautiful picture of that recreative power of Jesus Christ. The same recreative power that he speaks over each one of his people in time when he calls them to himself, when he speaks that word saying, rise out of your grave, and he gives you a new heart. That's the same miracle that he's doing to Lazarus. Have you ever thought about that? Some people scratch their heads and they say, why don't we have miracles anymore? Have you ever seen when God takes a sinner like me and transforms him? Nothing is more miraculous than that. Than taking away his heart of stone and giving him a heart of flesh so that he responds to God in faith. But the power to give life is something only God can do. And it's matched only by his ability to take it away. So what is the intended response? That Jesus is equal with his Father, that he's been given all authority? How should we respond? Notice in verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Honor is given to someone as a sign of respect and to show your deference to them. But with God, honor is a term of worship. The Jews rightly honored God. He is the creator and the one who redeemed them from slavery in Egypt in the Exodus. But they would never give that same honor to a man. That's blasphemous. But the equality that Jesus has with his Father entitles him to that honor because they are one. And anyone who refuses to honor the Son is implicitly saying that they refuse to honor the Father. You cannot, as so many in our pluralistic society, honor God made up in your mind in whatever way you choose. These are idols. Oh, there's all, every way to get to heaven. I'm a good person or I follow this God. There's only one way we can honor God and that is by showing honor to His Son. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way to God. That is through His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you do not know His Son, you cannot have access to the Father. John wrote the gospel structured as it is around signs all which point to the manifestation of the power of God in Jesus Christ all for the purpose of honoring him. But what honors the son most? It's really almost too good to be true. It's not money. It's not a title, it's not just it's not making Jesus president or naming your child after him. It's something much simpler than that. It's faith. Nothing honors the Son and therefore nothing honors the Father more than believing that Jesus is the Son of God who has all authority to give and take life. Luther in his freedom of a Christian said, For no honor is equal to attributing truthfulness and righteousness to someone, which is how we honor the one in whom we trust. Can we ascribe to anyone anything greater than truthfulness, righteousness, and absolutely perfect goodness? Conversely, the greatest contempt is to suspect or to accuse someone publicly of being, in our opinion, a liar and wicked. Which we do when we do not trust a person. So when the soul firmly believes the God who promises, it regards God as true and righteous. Nothing can show God greater respect. This is the highest worship of God, to bestow on God truthfulness and righteousness and whatever else ought to be ascribed to the one in whom a person trusts. End quote. You can't honor somebody if you don't believe them. If you think that what they are saying is a lie, how would you be honoring them? Jesus is either a liar and therefore blasphemes by making himself equal with God or he's a lunatic and his ravings should be disregarded as coming from a madman. Alternately, he is one who, say, who he is who he says he is. He is equal with the Father, and therefore He is to be honored as such, hailing Him as Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, words are not enough to plumb the depths of the mystery of the equality that Jesus here expresses with you, His Father. We marvel, Father, As we consider that You sent Your Son fully God to take on flesh and to dwell among us. To take on not just a human body, but to take on Himself the sins of His people. To suffer and to die for us. Father, we know that the only response to His message is honor is to ascribe truthfulness to Jesus and His words, His person and His work, to believe that He is the Lord and that what He says is true. And to doubt, to see in this lies the ravings of a madman is the greatest act of dishonor that anyone could ever do to Jesus. May you change our hearts so that we respond to ascribe truthfulness to Jesus Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen.